This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Stacy Finney, Knee Gold. Uh, today is July the 6th, 2013. We're conducting this interview in my very cool house in Roxborough, New Jersey. Uh, Roxborough, uh, Philadelphia. <laughs> Jesus, uh, we were just talking about New Jersey. Uh, and this is part of the Loud Fast Philly series. Hello, Stacy. Hello. Uh, so, okay, uh, as we customarily begin, uh, where were you born and when? I was born in 1965 in Philadelphia. Um, pretty much born and raised here. I moved around a little bit early on, um, but was a South Street kid most of my life. Mm -hmm. so. so you grew up in South Philly? I grew up at Front and Fitzwater, which if you talk to anyone from South Philly, it's not really South Philly, but right. it is south of South Street, yeah, so yeah. technically it does count. Um, but yeah, South Philly. Um, my mom had a store on South Street, so... What kind of store was that? Um, it was like a gourmet food store where you could go and get all the imported coffees that, you know, you can get at Starbucks now, but back yeah, then yeah, it was kind of like unheard of yeah. um, and things like that. Um, so most of my time was spent um, at her store on South Street, running around and hanging out. Mm -hmm. So what was the neighborhood like, uh, you know, when you were growing up over there? Um, Philly, well, that area, that area is considered Queens Village, um, but is still very connected to South Philly. And at that time, um, you know, it was the mid-70s, um, really just coming out of the civil rights movement. Um, Philadelphia was still a very segregated um, city, and my neighborhood was uh, mainly uh, Polish-Irish, you know, blue-collar, working class, dads worked at the shipyard um, neighborhood. There were, because I think we were, we were closer to South Street, there, there was a little bit more of a tolerance, um, and we did have other Spanish families living in the neighborhood and things like that, but for the most part, it was white, blue-collar Philly. Mm -hmm. um, it was tough. It was a really tough neighborhood. Yeah to grow up in. Was there a pronounced bohemian vibe on South Street? Oh, very much so. It was a stark contrast to Front and Fitzwater and a couple blocks away to South Street where like the world was exploding. I mean, mm -hmm. things were just happening and you were a kid and you're going like, what the fuck? Like it was amazing. I mean, we just had, there were artists, there were musicians, there was just... You know, we had Rocky Horror every Friday and Saturday night at midnight. You had the TLA. TLA. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> like I grew up in a TLA movie theater, going to all the movies there, going to see Fellini films, going to see Eraserhead, um, going to Rocky Horror at 12, 13 years old, mm -hmm. staying out on the street till you know two, three in the morning, um, and you know finding my way home when things finally started to wind down on South Street. But it was just. It just, at that time, was a very vibrant, um, happening place where you could hang out and it felt safe. Um, there were every walk of life. I mean, you know, black, gay, you know, tranny, you know, you name it. Yeah, yeah. It was there and it was cool. Like nobody, no one cared. And then you go home three blocks to Front and Fitzwater where who you were really mattered. So it was, it was very different, um, even in close proximity. And South Street, of course, is nothing like this today. I mean, it's like no. you know, a condom store and a McDonald's or something. And I mean, gold exchange. <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. If you a, need to buy and sell some jewelry. That yeah, you <laughs> I don't know why anyone bothers to converge there, and almost no one. That, no one does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's changed a lot. It's really changed a lot. I don't, I don't get down there too often, um, but the times that I do, I'm always really surprised. Um, to see what the street has become because it just, um, it was an amazing place in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. so. so it seems logical that com coming out of the, the working class neighborhood and then having these, these bohemian influences mm -hmm. coming into your head at a young age that moving towards something like punk would sort of make sense because the, the, sort of the key elements are there. And part, one of them maybe being like a sort of a little bit of an fu to the, the people around you in the neighborhood. A big, yeah. big fu, not just a little one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very large. Well, and but even before then, I mean, I remember being five years old and hanging out at Tiny Tim's house with my dad. 
Like, you're, you're, what the fuck is that about? Tim. Like, how does my father know Tiny Tim? How does why, your father know Tiny Tim? And why am I at his house with yeah. listening to him play that little ukulele? It just, um, I don't know how my dad knew him. I mean, my dad was very, um, my dad was a Philly cop. Um, he was very conservative. Um, but he he kind of early on walked this other life and had, you know, in, in the 50s was into the whole beatnik scene and, um, you know, coming into the 60s, he still had a lot of these friends, but I think the things that went down in the 1960s, and my dad was working race riots in southwest Philadelphia under Rizzo, mm -hmm, who was right. then police commissioner, who then became our fine mayor and yeah. dropped dead in a toilet, which... <laughs> just desserts. <laughs> yeah, you might want to actually it's just take a moment to kind of do a little sidebar to kind of sure. say, say a little few words about Rizzo for people who don't really know him because he's a figure that looms large in Philadelphia, but I think that... Google it. YouTube him. Yeah, um, I mean, no, he, he, he's a formidable... Jesus Christ. I mean, Rizzo just, you know, had such a grip on Philadelphia. Um, he was powerful. I mean, he was the hard-ass, hard-nosed, you know, blue-collar you know, working man's man. Um, he didn't take any shit. He ruled with an iron fist. Mm -hmm. And if you were a cop under Rizzo during that time when he was commissioner, that is how you ruled with an iron fist. You went in to kick ass, get the job done, and go home. Um, so, yeah, Rizzo. I mean, he just racist, you know, and... Um, Philly loved him. The blue-collar Philly mm -hmm. loved him. Um, he went on to become mayor of our fine town. Um, and, uh, you know, when I say he dropped dead in, in a toilet, he did in a bathroom in City Hall, and it serves him right, and I don't really feel bad about saying that. Fair enough. Um, but anyway, but so no, I mean, it just was a very difficult time, and for somebody like my father, who, you know, was sort of on this other side for a while, you know, saw a lot. Um, and I think that that kind of uh, jaded him a little bit and, and hardened him in a lot of ways. I mean, he was a pretty tough motherfucker to begin with. He fought his way to school every day through South Philly and mm -hmm. put up with a lot of shit growing up But um, um, and grew up in a tough neighborhood. But, you know, anyway, so, but he knew these people. Um, so I remember being at Tiny Tim's house and, you know, so there, there were just things, you know, I remember being eight years old and finding, um, I don't know if you know who Harry Nielsen is. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, you're breaking Nielsen's my heart. Nielsen. Yes. That was a great album at yeah. eight years old. You know, I just, I had discovered, you know, I want, I want to be a spaceman. You know, you're breaking my heart. You're tearing it apart. So fuck you like that. <laughs> how much better does that get for an eight year old? And, yeah, I, yeah. and I'm just thinking, you know, just to back up, I was very, very quiet most of my childhood, like to the point of um, beyond shy. I, I didn't talk to anyone, um, and my, my parents worried about that, um, and it's very different than who I am today, but as a kid, um, I had a very um, tumultuous childhood. Um, it was very unstable, and, and there was just a lot that went on so my way of dealing with that was just to withdraw and observe from the background and and really just try to be invisible disappear just right. if you disappear no one will notice you nothing can right. happen they can't give you any grief no one can give me grief yeah, right. and everything is cool so you know anyway but musically um you know i just started noticing these things um i remember being like 11 years old and we were driving by jfk stadium on I-95 and Peter Frampton was playing and it was do you feel mm -hmm. like I do and I'm sitting there thinking no Peter Frampton I do not feel the way you do okay like it just I, I just knew that I did not fit in to what seemed to be the kind of normal everyday society I didn't fit into my neighborhood I didn't fit in fit in at school you know I got chased home routinely by the girls from the projects um, picked on, harassed, bullied, you know, I mean, when you're a quiet kid, you're an easy target. Um, but then I, you know, I just, I kind of, 
not really sure what happened, if it was puberty or I just got tired of it all. But, you know, when I think about it, I mean, I really just, I felt like, you know, when you look at a spider web and you see an, it catches an insect and that insect is fighting to get out and the more it fights, the more tangled it becomes. And yeah. it's kind of how I felt, you know, because I just was going inward all the time. And, um, and I just reached a point where I just felt like I was sick of it. And at that same time began discovering music and everything that I heard in the music I was listening to spoke to and said everything I was feeling. You know, so, so what were these early recordings you're listening to that were really influential um, to you? You know, I mean, the, you know, early, early on, I mean, it was just kind of basic stuff. It was like Frank Zappa, Queen, David Bowie, you know, um, things like that. But when I was 13, I discovered the Ramones. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was just like, wow, you know. Um, it just, it, it just kind of, hit me in a way that nothing had ever hit me hit me before um, and I really just became um, rebellious and all the anger and frustration that I had been kind of stuffing down all those years my mother was like who are you I mean I was unrecognizable and um, yeah I mean I just sort of was like fuck it this this is this is where I want to be mm -hmm. um, and then I kind of started, I started hearing more stuff as time went on. I mean, by the time I was 16, um, you know, I had already gone to see The Who at JFK, but The Clash opened up. Mm -hmm. And that was like, that was amazing. Now, how did they go over The Clash? Uh, Horribly. Yeah, because I've and always I, heard that, that, you know, like The Who rock dudes were not into. Oh my God, it was awful. It was, it was like the Hooters, who gives a shit, um, Santana, which they were really awesome, even though I was wasn't really into Santana. Even like, at that point, they were still good. Santana. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like by, yeah, like yeah, yeah. It was eighty-two. Yeah, they were still decent, um, at least live. And then the Clash, and then the Who. And when the Clash came on, people were booing them. They were throwing shit at them. And I think I was the only one there, yeah. totally rocking out to the Clash. Right. You know, and, so you knew them like prior to the Yeah, songs, yeah. Right? I had already, you know, I had already known who they were. I mean, hanging out on South Street, like you, you kind of, you got exposed to things without even kind of realizing that you were being exposed. It just, it was an evolution. Mm -hmm. You, you were just a part of it. And, and as things unfolded, you know, so did my life. I mean, when you're a teenager, you are you know, identity development, that is the crux of your life at that time. You know, mm -hmm. who am I? Where am I going? How do I want to get there? You know, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Who do I want to be? And, you know, what does that all mean? You know, and it sort of just explodes. And for me, it exploded big. Um, but then, like, I, uh, I remember being at um, a, sadistic, a sadistic exploits house party. Now, I didn't really know the exploits. I was 16, mm -hmm. um, but I wound up at this party at their house, and uh, you know, it, it it was crazy. Like I loved it. All this great music was playing. I didn't even know what half of it was, right. um, you know. But it was amazing, and I just knew I liked it. And I remember um, Nancy Petrillo mm -hmm. was there, and uh, being intimidated as hell. But not only her, because she was sort of the queen of the punk scene back yeah, then. Yeah, like she's that's, coming up in August, by the way. I know, yeah. and 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 ironically, you know, she actually messaged me last night. We we had met briefly um, at that party, and that was my only encounter with her, I think. Um, but I was I was so uh, just intimidated, just being a kid, and just you know wanting to be a part of this. And just being like, wow, like, you know, um, in awe, kind of. So she had actually messaged me last night about Lenny, who we know couldn't be here today. Um, he was bitten by a giant spider, <laughs> I should point out, and the yes, spider knocked his yes. teeth out. <laughs> <laughs> now, come on, you got to be really serious. <laughs> you said that you wouldn't make me laugh. Um, but anyway, so... Yeah, um, so it, she had messaged me last night and, and asked about Lenny, and we wound up actually chatting for quite some time about those times, and, you know, um, <laughs> as 
There's no laughing in Loud Pass Philly. There's no funny shit in hardcore. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it was just really nice. Like, how you know, you, as a kid, you perceive the world in a certain way because you don't necessarily understand it. And as an adult, it's so nice to be able to go back and realize that those are really just childhood fears and insecurity and that... I mean, we're all really the same at the end of the day. And we yeah, great you're talking to like a 16-year-old looking at an 18-year-old, which seems like a vast gap. Yeah, but then in actual reality, you're talking to a few years of life. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're like worldly. You're, you're going out with Brian Lathrop. You're involved in, in the Better Youth Organization. Yeah. Like, you're making things happen in the scene. People respect you. People look up to you. And I want to be like you. Like, mm -hmm. as a kid, you're just thinking, wow. You know, so when we were talking last night, we talked about some of that. You know, I just, I had just said, you know, I'm so honored that, you know, we're talking right now and, and kind of threw it out there that I had been intimidated and she, you know, laughed and was like, really? But, you know, again, it's, it's really perception um, when you're that age. So, yeah, I mean, I started getting exposed to those kind of things. I mean, I had seen autistic behavior play on Cater Street. I mean, that was my turf. That was our hangout, our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So it was all kind of um, by happenstance. You know, it wasn't like I, I necessarily had friends who said, hey, let's go to the show, or hey, check this out. I was just kind of there, um, yeah. hanging out, and things happened. I did have friends on the street um, that I grew up with um, who, who did, you know, become involved in the same scene that I did in the same way, some in different ways. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I just started discovering stuff, and then when I was... I guess 18 and um, like Love Hall okay. had opened up. I mean, that that was really when the whole hardcore thing absolutely smashed me over the head and took over my life because, I mean, already by high school, I was into the Dead Kennedys and stuff like that. And like, I had my Nazi punks fuck off t-shirt that I used to get in trouble for and sent to the principal on a daily basis. And I had a mohawk and combat boots and I had the look and whatever, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I was into the music, but locally, like those early shows and listening to bands like Wide Eye and FOD um, and Ruin. I mean, FOD, Power Load, like I, it just, it's like they, they got inside my head. It was everything I was thinking and everything I was feeling and it was like, it just blew the fuck up. Um, and that was kind of that. I mean, I was sucked in wholeheartedly because it really, um, I knew at that point that that is where I belonged and that is where I wanted to be and these were the people that I wanted to be with. They were like-minded, um, we had similar interests um, and no one was gonna give me any shit. No one was gonna pick on me, no one was gonna chase me home. Nobody really cared if I had a mohawk, nobody cared if I was wearing my great aunt's house dress with a pair of combat boots and had a big fucking bow in my hair. Like, no one gave a shit and it just, it felt um, like home. So that was kind of. So how did you feel being being a woman involved in the scene? Did you were there a lot of other women who were active participants as well, or did you feel like that you were one of few? Um, in the hardcore scene, I felt like I was one of the few in terms of being in a band. Um, certainly, you know, you had um, Dr. Bombay um, that had um, female. Um, um, I can't remember if it was one or two women. But, um, but they were more of like a punk um, kind of sound. Um, Informed Sources had uh, a female singer, um, and they actually... And they were a Philly band? They were a Philly band. Um, and, and I'm sorry, Initial Attack, <laughs> not Informed Sources. That's Frank Blank, Frank Blank, who if you have not spoken to yet, you really need to. Um, I'll get there. <laughs> yet another on the list. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he's a plethora of information. I mean, he, he yeah. Brilliant. But anyway. And the um, morphines, I guess we're around. And the morphines. Yeah. I mean, my God, like Elizabeth, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so there were some and, and uh, you know, but mostly either they were in the background, like Carol Schutzbank was managing Ruin, um, or, you know, helping, they were helping put on shows or, you know, working at clubs. But I think for the most part back then, girls, females were participants in the crowd. Mm -hmm. in this just in the scene um, at the shows uh, I know that in the early days with BYO um, Nancy was integral with that uh, but I don't think it is to the degree today and, and I don't know that you know I think someone like Elizabeth Fiend was very tuned in 
to women's issues and, and, and things of that nature, I don't know that at that age, at least for me, that I had the maturity to think about it or care. Mm -hmm. You know, like I just, for me, um, I was always one of the guys. Right. So I, what do I need to think about? Like, I, it just, yeah. Did you ever, did, were you hearing any of any kind of issues like that addressed in the music you were listening to, like say, Crass or something like that would have very defined feminist politics, yeah. but there weren't very many other bands really kind of directly addressing those issues. Not the stuff I was listening to. I mean, I was listening to like the Circle Jerks, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Social Distortion, Mommy's Little Monster, you know, yeah, yeah. like, um, and so I, I just, I just did not really have that awareness at that time. It wasn't anything that was on my radar um, or that I was really thinking about. I grew up, you know, girls can do anything boys can, so fuck you. If mm -hmm. I want to play football, I'm going to play football, and if you don't like it, I'll kick your ass. Right. Like it's. <laughs> and do you think yeah. the men around you, were you able to be taken seriously as a person and not just like a woman that would potentially be somebody's girlfriend? Um, you know, I think that that just depends on who you're talking to. You know, I think for the most part, yes, I, I would like to think that. Um, but certainly there are guys that just want to fuck. And yeah, that's yeah, fine yeah, too. Yeah, like yeah, that's, yeah, part of any You can't, you're anything, 18, yeah. you're 19, everybody wants to fuck. So right. it's not like, uh, you know, I, I just wasn't paying attention. I really wasn't. Um, I was working out a lot of shit um, in my own head. Um, figuring out who I was and all of that was just on the periphery and that came for me much later as I matured into an adult and I like to call myself a late bloomer in terms of that um, I was more concerned with just the here and now having fun um, and you know going to see bands and hanging out I mean life was short and I knew at some point you know, I would have to make other choices in my life and do other things, and that this was something that, um, you know, I was going to live in the moment for. Right. Did you have the feeling like a lot of people had in the early 80s, and I, I know I did, even though I'm you know, a few mm -hmm. years younger than you, that the, the world was going to be blown up at some point, that, that we were on the verge, <laughs> you know, the nuclear clock was like ticking towards 12, and that there oh, was yeah. this inevitability of this war. Sure, and yeah. and so live for today, because tomorrow, who the fuck knows? It's gonna who knows? Yeah, threats. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, threats. You know, thus Kremlin Corps. You yeah, know, yeah. I mean. Yeah, I guess we should segue into into the. Actually, before we get into the band, I just wanted you to kind of set up the scene just a little bit more for the era, uh, in terms of where you seeing um, talking about violence and yes. drugs or substance abuse. Did you see a lot of that in the scene in early eighties? In the scene. You know, you saw everything. And I think everyone will have a different perspective that you talk to and a different take on things. Um, I, I saw some violence um, and I saw some drugs. I have friends who were prostituting themselves to get money for heroin. Um, I have friends that are dead. Was, her um, was heroin then popular at that time? Not initially, okay. not initially. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> during my adolescence, it was more like, you know, pot, hallucinogens, then speed became popular, but then heroin kind of took over, you know, more toward, I think, like, you know, 85-ish. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if there was an exact year, but sure, yeah. I just remember kind of seeing certain people really get heavily involved in that. Um, so it was there. I mean, and again, growing up on South Street, if, you, if I wanted it, I could get it, and I could get it for free anytime. You know, I mean, that's just how it was. And I mean, I was going into Dobbs when I was 12 and 13 to see George Thorogood play. I mean, okay. they, everyone that worked there from the owners on down knew my mom because she had a business on the street. So, you know, and there were other kids that kind of had that luxury of doing that too, um, of hanging out. So it was all there and it was offered. Didn't mm -hmm. matter how old you were. Right. You know, at 13, yeah, you want a line or you want, you know, you could have it. Right. And this so. was, it was, not of interest to you or uh, off and on I mean you know I'm not going to sit here and say oh I never you this know. is a long time ago <laughs> well it doesn't even yeah. matter I yeah. mean it's you know it's it, it for me it was part of adolescence you know mm -hmm. it was part of the learning curve it was part of experiencing life um, I certainly partied at different times that I was always a take it or leave it 
kind of person around drugs and alcohol. I never had that addictive personality, and unfortunately, there are people who do. And it and I watched what happened to them over the years, and even now, you know, to see them in their later lives. And uh, that was never going to be me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I might have had shit to work out, but that shit yeah, was yeah, never yeah. going to define my life. So I played, I partied, I had fun. Um, but there were long periods where, you know, I did the straight edge thing and, you know, whatever, just didn't care and didn't want to party, but sure. Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, <laughs> right. so moving into the band, then, what is the, what is the genesis of, of you forming uh, Kremlin Corps, which was, uh, you know, one of, I guess, one of very few female-fronted yeah. Yeah. hardcore bands. Uh, yeah. Of, of, certainly Philadelphia, but really, ultimately, of the U.S., there weren't. You know, again, happenstance. You know, I think I had this habit of falling in shit and coming out smelling like a rose sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, you know. Um, and I know you, you talked to Rich from Brutal Truth. He was uh, an original Kremlin Corps me- uh, member, so, uh, you know, I know he had a little bit to say about it. But um, actually, in 83, um, in September of 83, um, Mark Furnish, who was from Long Island, Rich Hoke, who was from out near Harrisburg on a farm. Was he rich poor at the time? He, <laughs> he became, he, he, okay, so he wasn't rich poor met, met, metamorphosized into rich poor. No, he was not rich poor. Um, he was rich from Harrisburg who grew up on a farm, mm-hmm. um, and came to Penn as well as Mark and Tony Van Veen, who now owns CD Baby, you're welcome, Tony, um, and lives out in ha- Haverford, I think Haverford. Um, PA Tony was from Aruba. And then Doug Bennett, who was from Mount Airy, who's now Doc Israel. Oh, okay. Right. So, little high school Doug, mm-hmm. um, cute little Doug. Uh, they were all, we were the original and the only band members. Um, but to answer your question, um, September 83, um, Mark and Tony and Rich had all landed at Penn. Mark was becoming friendly with them, but in the very beginning, and in fact, I just spoke to Mark the other day, and I said, you have to remind me. Um, Mark and I went out for three years. We, mm-hmm. we dated, and uh, um, I couldn't remember the first time we met. Um, I'm not very good with those kinds of right. details. But, so I, You I, can always just make it up. I know, I could make the shit up, but, uh, but no, he... he you know, he said, yeah, I remember. He said it was the day I was supposed to register for class, and he decided to skateboard down to South Street instead. And apparently I was hanging out at 4th and South, where I typically was, um, with my friend Giovanna and a bunch of other people. And we had a boom box, and we were playing punk music. And, you know, he stopped and, and started talking to us. Um, and, uh, excuse me, at the time... Well, from that point on, Mark and I became friends. So he, you know, he started coming around and looking for me, and uh, you know, we started hanging out. We weren't dating at that point, but he wanted to start a band. He was in a band. I think it was Violent Children up in Connecticut um, with some friends of his, and uh, you know, he got to Philly, and that was, you know, his parents had it in their mind that he was going to Penn to get an education. He had it in his mind. He was coming to Philly. He was going to find the scene, and he was getting in a band. Right, right come hell or high water, that was Mark's agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I also didn't know at the time was that Mark had an interest in me as well, because I just was very aloof, mm-hmm. didn't care. You know, I talked to everybody. Um, I had a lot of guy friends. Um, but, you know, so that, so he, he basically started coming around and hanging out, and he's like, oh, I want to start a band. Um, you know, do you play? And I said, well, you know, I went to settlement music school, I took bass guitar lessons, I took voice, but I was not looking at that time to be in a band or hadn't, hadn't even crossed my mind. And he's like, well, why don't you play bass? I want to start a band. So we started practicing a little bit, um, and I just really felt like, that's too much work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to hang out. I don't want to work. I just graduated high school. Yeah. Like, I'm not, you know... it. it I was not disciplined enough at that time um, to really care. So then he said, well, why don't you sing? I was like, all right. So in, in the meantime, um, as that was happening, um, Mark and I believe Rich and Tony entered like a battle of the bands or something up at school. 
So he kind of hooked up with them, and then Rich became our bass player, Tony became the drummer, Mark played guitar, and Doug also played guitar, and I was the lead vocalist. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how, how it came to be. Mark wore me down, we began dating, and and there it went, so, you know, yeah. And are you writing the lyrics as well? Um, I was writing and Mark was writing, and in fact, I just found one of our notebooks the other day. Nice. So it has his original handwriting as well as mine from when we were 18. Very good. Yeah. So the band ultimately released an EP, right? We did, on Speed of Sound, which was uh, Steve Luckshides. He's down in Florida now, but he was a really good friend of ours. Um, and I have to laugh because every time I think of him, I think of his pinto that he drove. Uh -huh. <laughs> that used to backfire all the time. <laughs> anyway, so, sorry. I just get that image in my mind and I start laughing. But um, Steve, Steve really wanted to start a record label. Um, so he started Speed of Sound and we were one of the first bands on it. We recorded in North Philly at Otto Capo Bianco's basement recording studio in, yeah, I said North Philly, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we put out this EP. Uh, we Which was what? How many songs? Were four. Okay. Had four songs, and uh, we kind of did everything ourselves. I mean, we folded every. I think we did like 500 EPs, mm -hmm. and we folded every sleeve. Our friend Dave Winters, who we cannot find, was an amazing artist, really, really good artist, and he sketched the Russian Kremlin crumbling and you know what was the significance of the band name you know it was more tongue-in-cheek because of what was happening at the time I mean we you know we were not political we mm -hmm. were just kind of I think more cerebral internally like working out the things that we were kind of thinking about and our own pain and angst of you know mm -hmm. being kind of adolescents but um you know, we, we came up with the name because that's sort of what was, you know, Reagan was in office and we were having issues with the Kremlin there because they like to shoot down poor little Korean planes. And, you know, I, I don't know, Mark came up with the name. And so it was really just more of a joke for us. But um, some people really, you know, especially skinheads, thought we were communists and, you know, commie pinko fags. And like that became one of our you know, names that, that they like to refer to us as. So we were sure to include it on our record sleeve. Um, <laughs> it's one of the greatest bands that ever lived. Uh -huh. The Connie Pinko Redneck Fags. That's so good. sorry if I offend anybody, but that's what was said. Yeah, that's okay. So that uh, so you wound up getting around. Uh... We did. I mean, we, we, were, we were together for, I don't know, a little over a year maybe, um, to Steve Luckshide's disappointment in putting out the record, and then we kind of broke up shortly thereafter but that's what happens when you date one of your band members and you yeah, know yeah. shit happens was it the hope that there was eventually supposed to be an LP because you had several we, oh, songs yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh yeah we had we had tons more I mean I think at that point you know we weren't even thinking beyond that I think we were kind of um, we were all in school you know we all were part of the scene hanging out we were all in a band and we wanted to play and, and make music and and you know, get gigs and play shows, but I, I don't, I can't speak for the guys. I know that I was not thinking that far into the future. I was day to day, mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't tomorrow, like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, so for me, no, I mean, I think the hope at the end of the day, of course, you know, yeah, let's put out a full record. Let's see where this goes. But it never really got that far. I mean, we just, we were young. We were all 18, um, well, Doug was in high school yet, um, and uh, trying to make our way and figure stuff out, you know, so we did We did get around, I mean, we played Trenton City Gardens, we had played up in Boston, we had played Long March, CE Center, I mean, you know, the, the usual haunts um, and things like that, but um, yeah, it wound up coming to an end, and then the guys went on to do, to form Oblivion, Homo Picnic, Fat Howard's Army, you know, and now, of course, Rich, which props to him. I mean, yeah, yeah. brutal truth, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Rich from Harrisburg, <laughs> like, props to you, you know, for just completely finding your soul, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, yeah. So who were you playing with when the band was around? Oh, my God. I knew you were going to ask me that question. I should have asked Mark. I know we had opened for Scream. I, I honestly, I am not good with detail, but... 
you know, and who we were on the, I'd have to actually go through my flyers, which I gave away to uh, Philly Punk Archive, and he has not given them back yet. Uh, never <laughs> give your shit away. I always have two of everything. I gave him a box, a stack. So yeah, I mean, a lot of that's a blur of who we played with. It's a good question. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's I remember not. opening for Scream, and I think it was Trenton City Gardens that we opened for them yeah, there. Well, so that was like the great. biggest. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like that was like one of the big. Mark was really good about um, um, connecting with people, and you know, he was persistent, you know, mm-hmm. and just was always pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and Lenny was a big supporter of us, so he was always putting us at CE Center, you know, whenever he could. And so, yeah. So this is what, 84? Or 85 that the band it was, ultimately breaks up? It uh, was closer, let me see, 84, 85. Okay. Yeah, somewhere in 85 there. So where, yeah. where does your interest in, in hardcore go from there? I mean, are you still fully in, entrenched? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, fully entrenched and fully in school and working two jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, at the but same you're schooling in Philadelphia. Temple. Yeah. yeah, I was at Temple at the time, living in West Philly. Where actually, in West Philly? Um, on a street called Farragut, which was between 46th and 47th off of Spruce, we actually had a pretty infamous Halloween party there where the Morphines and Oblivion played in our basement. Nice. Um, I lived in a seven-bedroom house with... I actually found the house. I needed a place to live, and I rented a room with these architect students from Temple who I didn't know. They were these straight-laced, like, you know, I don't... I don't just regular yeah. dudes, you know, and I... And I came along, and then Mark wound up renting a room there, and then Todd Cody, who lives out in California now and um, is a, is a uh, promoter, um, we were all living there. Rent was probably $100 a month or something. Oh, less than that. I mean, and I could still barely afford it working <laughs> right. two jobs, you know? But um, it was great. So we decided we were going to have this party there, and uh, we had the Morphines play in Oblivion. Rich played bass for the Morphines that night, and, you know, it was a pretty, yeah. pretty infamous party. It was free. You know, it was just, uh, and we had a couple hundred people there, and you know, some shit went down, but it was still a really what, good what night. Kind of, what kind of shit went down? Um, you know, that was during a time you asked about violence in the in the hardcore scene, um, and I'm like searching my brain as we talk because, man, it was a long time ago. Um, there was some stuff going down in the scene at that time with the skinheads, and we were starting to see a lot more violence and a lot more animosity toward toward different people in the scene. Um, people already thought Kremlin Corps were commies and you know whatnot, and people knew who we were, and some people didn't like us, which, psh, that was fine. You don't have to, you know. Right, right. Um, but um, at the same time, if you're a skinhead and you're um, not um, looking to get along with people and you're full of hate and you hate me you don't need to be in my house right that's so coming true. to a free morphine show yeah, yeah go fuck yourself and find somewhere else to go so now were these skinheads were they were they coming out of philadelphia or were they from other areas like i know when i was young there were a lot of skinheads that came out of allentown yeah. and atlantic city yeah. not so many from the city itself was this philly um, or well both um um i mean we had the whole lefty thing which completely boggled my mind i understand it much better now as an adult you know why Left, lefty skinheads lefty skinhead the black girl from dc who identified with white supremacy which made no sense to me at that age because what why would you do such a thing but as an adult i can only imagine what made her <laughs> people come up with all kinds of stupid shit ideas well and i think you know and, and maybe you know maybe a part of her felt like that was the only way she could fit in i mean i'm sure she was struggling with her own identity and and who am i and why why am i not identifying with the black community and i want to be a part of this community and you know if you can't beat them join them I, you know yeah, yeah. and i'm sure as an adult she must look back now and think what was i think yeah. i hope she yeah, thinks, i think young people's heads are kind of a cauldron of confusion absolutely. so it, it eventually comes to a so boil. yeah so we we had some issues with her actually and she she beat the pulp out of our friend rory like her and her buddies came up they put him in the hospital this kid rory miller jewish Tur- jewish kid because he was jewish or mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah and we had some issues too but um we kind of took care of what we needed to do and, and that came to an end but but that night in West <laughs> West Philly God um, local skinheads decided that they wanted to come to our party and um, um, they showed up and we had someone at the door 
and saying, you know, and they knew, like, do not let these skinheads in. Like, they're not, they're just not welcome here. It's pretty easy to tell what they look like. When they it's not that hard store. to figure yeah, out, yeah. you know? And, and even though, like, you know, our good friend Dave Winters, like, he was a skinhead. He was not that kind of skinhead. Um, he was not, well, he was black. He was not racist. He was not, yeah. not hateful, you know? He just identified with, you know, straight edge and the minor threat kind of scene. But, um, um, but somehow they they came in so there were probably like a group of five or six of them and just prior to their coming in um, Paul Bearer mm -hmm. had shown up to my house with a giant bag of candy corn wait it wasn't drugs <laughs> it was not drugs okay. they were not tainted no and that was really before he I mean he was partying but that was really before he went on that decline um, but he had just shown up with a giant bag of candy corn, which, if anybody knows me, that is the way to my heart. God, you actually so, ate that shit. Oh, <laughs> my God, yes. Worst. Oh, candy corn. Yeah. You know, now not so much. I, I should have gotten a bag for you. You should have like gotten a bag for Halloween. me. Yeah. It would have lasted me all year, though. But, um, but yeah, he had just handed me this giant bag of candy corn. And, uh, and these, these kids came in. And then, of course, there was a whole hubbub and... and Someone had come up to me and said, "Oh, you know, the skinheads are here, and you know." They hate candy corn. They hate candy corn, and I and I'm, you know, and and I am not a violent person. I don't like to watch violence. I don't like to see it. I don't like to see people fight. I don't like to watch it on TV. I don't. It, it upset. It's upsetting to me. Um, but I'm also from Philly, and I also learned early on that you have to defend yourself. I mean, if somebody is. I'm not going to stand there and take anybody's shit. Mm -hmm. So these kids came in, and uh, I went up to them and said, you need to leave. You know, and the one girl got in my face, like literally, and I was like, what are you going to do? And I, again, said, you need to leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, she took a swing at me, and I still had the bag of candy corn. <laughs> so you hit her with the candy corn bag? Oh, that's great. Bag. I don't think anyone's ever been hit with candy corn bag before. Uh, <laughs> all my friends were standing there. She has a permanent triangle in there. Oh my god, the girl had a giant knot on her head from the bag of candy oh, corn. Oh, that's great. We got into this big fight. They eventually leave. Um, and, and the next morning, my best friend Dana and I were scraping candy corn with butter knives off of hardwood floors because they were everywhere. Yeah, I bet. But it, it really blew up into this big thing. I mean, they were threatening to burn our house down and like, you know, and all this retaliation and nothing ever came of it. I think. I wonder where they are now. Nowhere. Or, you know, <laughs> that's, that's I don't the best know. Answer. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think just standing up to them is what it took. Um, like any bully, they have a big mouth until you step up and you say, you know what, this is not cool, it's not going to happen, and, you know, we're all done. All kids should be armed with bags of candy they corn in case armed. they get harassed by bullies. Rich likes the sock and the pool ball. Yeah, yeah. I like the bag of candy corn. I'm, 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 I think I might go with the Neko wafers in a bag because I don't want to eat those fucking things, but I wouldn't mind hitting some people in the head with them. A little bit. Oh, my God. It was, it, I mean... In, in the moment, it was not cool, you know, what went down. But looking back now, like, I just kind of laugh every time because like, it's a bag of candy yeah, corn. Yeah. Like, what was I thinking? Paul was just standing there like, my fucking candy corn. <laughs> so. And that was the beginning of the precipitous decline. The decline, yeah. But no, nah, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, as far as my time in the hardcore scene, pro like, more toward, like, 86, it, I didn't... I didn't leave. I mean, I you know I turned 21. Um, I could legally get into clubs. I didn't have to sneak into the East Side Club, you know, um, or the Kennel or any you know revival. I could now legally walk in the door um, and and go see shows in those places. Um, and so I was still hanging out until probably just about 1990 when I graduated finally. Um, mm -hmm. From college, <laughs> took the I took the long term plan. Um, <laughs> you got there eventually. <laughs> well, I was like I said. I mean, I was working two jobs and putting myself through school. I mean, yeah, I had yeah. no help from my parents um, in terms of that. I was living on my own. I moved out my senior year of high school. Um, finished high school, you know, living outside of the house and working. Um, 
<clears throat> and yeah, worked two jobs and did what I had to do. So, you know, and, and it's not that, you know, I physically stopped hanging out, but spiritually, emotionally never left, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I still listen to a lot of that music and, and current, you know, kind of underground stuff. And um, it will always, I mean, it's, it's such a huge part of my life. It will always, music itself will always be a part of my life. Um, and that music in particular, because even to this day, you know, it, it speaks to me. And if I, you know, I'll hear a certain song and it's, you know, I can, I can look back and just kind of, you know, grin because I remember very vividly, you know, where my head was at at that time and what I was going through and, you know, um, just kind of reflecting mm -hmm. on where I've been um, and where I am now, but I can still relate to who, to who that person was at that time, mm -hmm. you know. Right, right. So. so we talked a little bit before the interview about what you do now, mm -hmm. and I think you should maybe bring that up because I think it, uh, it has, you know, something to do yes. with involvement in, in underground yes. music is kind of... Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. I mean, you know, and you talk a lot about the ethos and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, um, but so I work with at-risk youth. Um, it has always been my passion. I have known probably since I was 13, 14 years old um, that this is what I was going to do. I had my high school guidance counselor called me in for that one-time meeting. It was the one time that I wasn't actually in trouble. and got to meet with her and I got the what do you want to be when you grow up lecture question and uh, I told her I wanted to work with at-risk youth and she proceeded to yell at me and tell me you know there's no money in that what do you want to do that for and I'm thinking well obviously you have an issue with it you bitter old bitch like yeah, this is the guidance counselor who basically <laughs> does a version of that job yes, right but she was about 200 years old right. and probably at the end of her ropes with Northeast High School where I traveled every day to go to school when I felt like going. And uh, I was not the most, uh, I did not rate in attendance. Mm -hmm. You had <laughs> other school. shit to do. Well, you know, school for me was, high school was a big waste of time. Um, the things that, you know, I wanted to learn about life and, and high school to me was what is the point? What am I actually doing here that is benefiting me? Nothing then why go? Mm -hmm. So I would show up, take my tests, and do what I needed to do to get decent grades. And, you know, but there were weeks at a time where Stacy did not go to school. Bad, bad Stacy. Bad state. But, you know, I, and you and I had talked earlier, I was already reading, you know, books that, you know, most of those students were never going to encounter. Yeah. And maybe if they went on to college, they would. And, you know, and I had my own education at home with yeah, my parents. Yeah, Yeah, I guess if you have those kind of ideas coming into your head, everything else probably seems pretty mundane. You know, a series yes. of, like, dates yes. that you need to be able to regurgitate. Why? Yeah, it and then immediately no forget. Rather yeah. than, like, the more heavy concepts that you were probably absorbing. And there reading. was this exciting world out there that I wanted to go live. Like, I just was done with high school. So, at any rate, um, I did go on and, and uh, um, I spent about 20 years in Philly working in child welfare, uh, in foster care and residential treatment. Um, and now I work in uh, the Lehigh Valley doing prevention education. So um, I run a program and we go into the schools and we do drug and alcohol education, we do anti-bullying programs, we do we run small groups which are more uh, psychoeducational, so self-esteem and um, depression, relationships, you know, boys group, girls group. So it's it's more of a psychoed kind of theme. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean that's really been my passion and what I um, moved on to. I mean, once I got out of undergrad and started doing that, you know, there was a lot less time to do other things. I also got into mountain biking and mountain bike racing and was traveling all over the country in Canada um, racing bikes. So that took up about 13 future years um, from 1989 on. Mm -hmm. um, but I never lost that part of me. I mean, I really um, adhere to, you know, we have that individualist versus collectivist kind of society, mm -hmm. and, and I feel like the majority of people really are what's in it for me, you right. know, and, and taking what they can, and we see it in our government, we see it when we walk down the street, um, 
you know, we see it, you know, there's that stupid show on TV, you know, what would you do? Um, where they, 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 they oh God, it's, it's really dumb, but I, I've used, when I was teaching community college, I, I used it just to get my students talking about, you know, the choices that we make and, and, and why we make them. And, and the show, the premises, they, they set people up um, for like bad scenarios. Like this kid is coming out to his parents about being gay and, uh, and, and the parent is reacting like, you know, vehemently, like just against it. It's a total yeah. setup. Yeah. But then strangers are all reacting to it. So it's a social psychology, um, you know, right. experiment, but it's totally exploits yeah. everything, and you know? Probably entirely fake, like all uh, of entirely. the reality shows. Right. But, you know, but you see, but even in those reactions, or, you know, you s forget TV, walk down the street. You see somebody being harassed. You, you see a child being smacked. Do you say anything? Do you mind your own business? Do you keep walking? Or do you say, hey, do you need some help? Can I, you know, someone's laying on the ground. Do you think it's a bum on the street, a vagrant, someone homeless? Or do you think it's somebody who needs medical attention? Mm -hmm. How do you react to it and what do you do? And I think in that whole individualistic kind of mindset, people just keep going. Um, and the thing from from the whole punk hardcore scene, and I think even prior to that, because growing up around South Street and growing up with very liberal mom and stepdad anyway, um, I learned early on, you know, really what it means to think about other people, things outside myself, um, and so that whole idea of collectivism and, and helping others and, and being involved, participating, participating in the hardcore scene, you know, being in a band, helping put on shows, working the door, you know, doing fanzines, whatever people were doing, um, to now of continuing to be a part of a community and, and give back in some way and not just be a silent observer like I was at eight years old, mm -hmm. but actually participating. And, and even beyond my work, I mean, I do that, I do it every day. I mean, I have, I know strangers as well as friends who, you know, are struggling and I do what it takes to help them. If that's to organize used furniture to furnish a home so that these people have something to sleep on and a place for their children to sleep or, you know, buying them groceries. I mean, I was in the grocery store a couple years ago and up where I live and there were, you know, mom and dad and three young kids and the kids were filthy parents disheveled you know and they had a grocery cart full of food um and they were giving i guess now with uh wick and food stamps they don't give you food stamps it's like a card that Cotton. gets swiped and they had like 200 dollars worth of groceries in there and the card wasn't working and i'm be i'm like behind them in line and it wasn't working and it wasn't working and like like a lot of time goes by and mm -hmm. you can just see the humiliation yeah, yeah. in their faces. Sure. And finally, I was just like, fuck it. Here, pay. I want, I'm going to pay. We're done. Like, these people do not need to be humiliated mm -hmm. any longer. Like, for whatever reason, the card wasn't working. I did not feel like they were trying to scam anybody. It was a family that was trying to feed their kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was awful. Like, I just couldn't imagine being in their shoes. Mm -hmm. To me, what is 200 bucks? I have a job. I can go back. I can make more money. I'm not rich. I live w within my means. But I really feel like there is this giving back to people that we don't do mm -hmm. um, in our world. So even if it, it doesn't fix their problem, it doesn't make their lives any better in the long run, it made it better in that moment. So if I can do that, mm -hmm. why wouldn't I do it? And so for me, like that's, that's the community that I learned growing up in that environment and, and being in that scene where, you know, I had, when I lived at 4th and South, people used to ring my bell at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, it's too cold to skateboard to Kensington, can I crash? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm really tired or I'm wasted, right. you know, and I can't get home. Um, every Monday night, I mean, I was broke in college um, and working two jobs, as I said, and every Monday night, people knew that I was making dinner anybody that wanted it so I would have like 25 people you know coming over right. for spaghetti or whatever it is like that I could afford to throw together but 
for me, it was really that sense of belongingness mm -hmm. and that sense of community and the sense of, uh, you know, being unselfish and, and caring about other people. Um, and doing your small part. I mean, I think, I think in, in the grand scope of things, it's important to have numbers and, and large groups of people doing big things globally. I mean, you look at gay marriage right now, you need power in numbers and you need people with power that can affect change. It has to happen. And that's important. And although some of those things, and not particularly gay marriage, but you know, like global warming and feeding the hungry and things like that, it, it, it gets watered down through corporate involvement, mm -hmm. you know. But there are things that we can do every day that just, they go unnoticed, they don't need to be noticed. It's just, like, you can affect change on such a small level. Why not? Right. Like, why not do that? So, I mean, I think that that's sort of what has stayed with me, and I think that's the um, core value and belief system that I walked away with and have always kept with me. So, you know, you can take the girl out of Philly, but you can't take the Philly out mm -hmm. of the girl. You can take the girl out of the hardcore scene. I mean, I, I realized fairly early on that, or, you know, at least by 24, 25 years old anyway, that I didn't have to look the part to be a part of something or, or to identify with something. It wasn't about the combat boots. It wasn't about having dreadlocks and no one wanting to sit next to me on a bus mm -hmm. because I might, you know, steal their purse. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but it was more about a values and, and a belief system and how you think and perceive and interact with the world for me, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, no one can take that from you. You, you know, you can take my leather jacket, right. you know, but you can't take that. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to say now that would outwardly telegraph that you had this involvement in hardcore. And, and do, you, it's, do you encounter people who, who kind of similarly, you know, you wouldn't know in initially seeing them that they had been involved in this thing, but then you come to find out that, yes. you know, they have this, maybe not even a secret history, but just a history that just wouldn't sure. immediately be come to the fore. Listen, yeah. Mark Furnish, who formed Kremlin Corps, is a very high-powered attorney in Manhattan. He is on CNN. He's on Fox, that news channel, yeah. which I give him a rash of shit for. Um, but, you know, he knows they're full of crap, too. Like, he, you know, the, and I don't want to speak for Mark, mm -hmm. um, but I know Mark and I know attorney Mark. Right. You know, they're, they're, they are often, I think, at odds in that way because he, he's brilliant and he knows when people are full of shit, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, he's out defending criminals and and he's speaking on the Zimmerman case um, he's been on several times in the last couple weeks you know to talk about that and in terms of the law he teaches at a law school as well um, but he's a punk at heart too and if he could just be rocking out playing his guitar it is exactly what he would be doing yeah so absolutely there are people that you know that I mean I know him but there are people that I come across not that often especially where I live Mm -hmm. um, and, and I will say where I live is a very small community. Everyone there was born and raised. Um, when I got here, I asked if you knew people on your block. Yeah. Because I used to live on this street yeah, a couple is, doors down, weird. which is yeah, really, because yes. I left the year you yeah, came. all of the places. Very yeah. weird. Um, full circle, though. And um, when I lived here, I knew a lot of the block. Um, and, but everyone was moving at that time. And then I was, I think, one of the last on my road to go. Um, but part of that was, you know, I move, I live up near the Poconos. I live in essentially not the woods, but the country, um, out near a lake in the middle of nowhere. And it's a small community. Everyone knows each other. And as I said, they were born and raised there. Um, but it's the idea that people know one another, they care about each other, they want to help one another. You know, we're a networking system. You know, a bunch of us have kids. Oh, your kid's at rec center today. You need me to pick him up. I got him. No problem. Go do what you got to do. I'll let me. You don't have that here. Mm -hmm. You know, if I need a cup of sugar, I'm not knocking next door to your house. I can go out to my neighbor up yonder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but it's that it's that sense of being together and working together and kind of helping one another. So those folks, you know, 
they do think a little differently. They, they don't necessarily understand where I came from and what my background is, but they certainly accept it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you if know. you're a solid citizen and hey, yeah, you know? and, and have that winning smile, <laughs> then you know it's going to work. And I come with criminal background checks because I work with kids. Well, yeah, I have an FBI true. clearance. Not a paido. You know? yeah. yeah. So I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, we've you know they've gotten to know me. I've gotten to know them. And you know, I sat in. Um, we went to the high school gym over the winter, and they had like it wasn't the Harlem Globetrotters, but it was something like that. Um, the basketball trick guys, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was sitting in the gym and I really had this epiphany of community because when I looked around the gym, I knew almost everyone in there and it was packed, it was full. Now my kid's in elementary school, but everyone there, even if I didn't know you personally, I knew who you were. I probably knew your kid's name. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that here. Like as, as I moved out of the car, hardcore scene and moved into more of my adult life, I mean, I had a, certainly had a big group of friends through cycling and a big connection, but they were all spread out, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, this in a very small scale, you know, really reminds me of kind of that same experience. So yeah, yeah. people say, what the hell did you move up there for? I love Pensatucky. It's a great place to be. It sounds nice from the way <laughs> you describe it. Uh, all right, I guess to sum yeah. up, and this is a question I often ask uh, people towards the end mm -hmm. of the interview is, Having experienced this thing through the 1980s uh, and now it's 2013, can do you see what the appeal is for young folks uh, just coming into this world that's been around, you know, now close to 40 years? Absolutely. Why do you yeah. think? Yeah. Why do you think that they yeah. they're still drawn Hell to this yes. thing? Yeah. You know, I mean, I laugh and say sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but you know, it it's not. It's it's you know, kids. People perceive kids as being, you know, unknowing. Oh, what do you know? You're just a kid. You know, but kids know a lot. And they're sponges, and they want to absorb, they want to experience. Um, and I, I feel like what's being offered to them is not enough. It wasn't enough. When I heard Peter Frampton at 11, yeah. I was like, what the fuck? I think the kids today, they're no different in that way, that they want something more. They want to be challenged. They, they want to feel integrated. They want to feel productive and, and involved and connected. I mean, in this, I mean, seemingly disconnected, because really we are through Facebook and social media, we're kind of connected 24 seven. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a place to, to be and to fit in and to be creative, to um, be able to be yourself with little judgment. I mean, there's always, we're human, sure, yeah. you know, but yeah. I, I feel like, hardcore slash punk has always afforded that environment for for kids that that need that place you know not everyone wants to be an athlete not everybody wants to be an academic um, and maybe you want to be both and maybe you part of you does identify with you know the the whole punk thing but um, I don't think it's that different now I think the music is still relevant I mean, even when I go back and listen now, you know, to, to old minor threat stuff or, you know, FOD, I'm, I'm still thrilled in the same way. Um, and, and maybe, you know, and maybe some parallel, you know, a lot of the old heads, you know, they listen to Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, maybe they're having that same yeah, yeah. <laughs> experience, mm -hmm. but I don't feel like it's on that same level, you know. I mean, I just, uh, part, of, part of being in the scene then and now is that you can fully participate in any way you choose to and I think that that's a big piece of it yeah I don't think you can decide I want to be a rock star and maybe some people will but you can decide I want to perform Hell yeah and there's so few impediments Absolutely. Yeah. oh there's and there's so many forms of what performance is and what mm -hmm. music is and how that occurs and do I have to be the best musician out there to do that not necessarily um, but there's just opportunity too, you know. So I, I just think it still encompasses that idea, which is amazing because who would have thought? I mean, back when this all started, people were horrified. I mean, they just, I came home one day, I had hair halfway down my back, and, you know, it was not much longer than yours right now, maybe an inch. And mm -hmm. my mother cried 
because it was prom time, yeah. which I did not want to go to. Right. And uh, so that was part of it. I thought if I, you know, A, I wanted to cut off my hair um, because I was a little bit tired of being um, seen in that light of the pretty girl with the pretty, you know, mm-hmm. I was young and a lot of older guys thought I was older. Right. So there was that kind of attention. Mm-hmm. And so cutting off my hair was a big way to, although it got attention, it was not that kind of attention, yeah, which right. I did not want at that time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, at any rate, I, I got on a tangent there, but um, yeah, it's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing that it's had the staying power that it has. Um, and I love it. I mean, I don't see it as, you know, we were there and it was the best when we were there and now it sucks and, you know, nobody. It, it's just evolved and changed and, and grown and will continue, I think. Um, you know, the whole punk ideal, you know, it'll continue to grow and shape and morph and long after we're gone. Super. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for talking to me. Yay, thank you.